to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 367 and my conversation with the Director of Percussion Studies at Sam Houston State University in Texas, as well as part of the Social Justice Collaboration Project, The Innocents, and host of the multi-year podcast, Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives, John Lane. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou and band competitions. This past Saturday, we held our annual Champion of Champions Marching Band Festival at Memorial Stadium on the campus of Mizzou and hosted a number of local high school bands along with a wonderful judges panel for the weekend. The weather mostly held up. We were promised cloudy weather, just cloudy weather for the day, and that part delivered. But then there were intermittent drizzles, and a bit of rain towards the end of the day. The good news is that we did not have to delay any portions of the event and could go forth. Our students did a wonderful job as hosts and played portions of pregame and halftime for their exhibition, both of which were very well received by the audience. Mizzou Athletics was very easy to work with all day and fixed all issues quickly. It was good stuff all around. And with that, Let's get to this week's guest, John Lane. I was familiar with John mostly through contributions he'd made in percussive notes over the years and became much more familiar with him once we started to make contact. As mentioned, John is the director of percussion studies at Sam Houston State University, where he's built quite a program there. He's also been very active as a performer in many fields in the percussion area for a long time, particularly recently with his long-held collaboration with his Cincinnati Conservatory of Music percussion mentor, Al Adi, and their work in the Social Justice Advocacy Project, The Innocents. Along with all of that, John was an early adopter in the podcasting area, running the Standing in the Stream podcast for a number of years and talking to creative folks in all artistic genres. John and I chat about all of this, along with his time in DCI, teaching in Wyoming, his love of cooking, the current focus and inspiration he's been getting from the research and writing of Susan Nyman, and much, much more. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 2nd, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, John, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point and anything related to that. My day job is at Sam Houston State University. I've been teaching here at Sam Houston that's in Texas, in Huntsville, Texas, just north of Houston. I started my 18th year this year, so I've been here a long time had found it to be tremendously uh, rewarding. I've I've had a lot of really good support here for all the kind of uh, crazy projects that I embark on. Yeah, it's been a good home base for me over these many years. I've had terrific students go on to have successes and lots of different things. And so that's been a very rewarding part of my, my life. It's allowed me to uh, keep my research and performing. Uh, you know, I've been really supported with doing all of that. So yeah, that's that's what I do here at Sam Houston. That's kind of my job. Yeah. And what about outside of that? Then outside of that, I the the latest thing, the biggest thing in my life uh, professionally is 
this project called The Innocence that I do with Al Adi. Um, and Al was, of course, my teacher uh, my, in my doctorate at Cincinnati Conservatory. And in 2006, when I was working on my doctorate there, he approached me to collaborate with him. He had been invited to make some music for an art exhibit called The Innocence, the same topic, uh, at the Cincinnati Contemporary Art Center. It's interesting how these kind of ripple effects happen with with art, and, and that was the case for this piece. So that was an exhibit of photography by Taryn Simon called The Innocence, uh, which is a photography exhibit where she took people who were in prison for crimes they didn't commit, um, who were innocent, and some of them served upwards of 30 years in prison. And so she took them to playing on the idea of mistaken identity, because a lot of them had gotten caught up in this uh, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being mistaken for someone else. She took them to the scene of the crime and to the scene of their alibi, took these huge wall-sized mural uh, portraits of, of these individuals. And uh, it was an incredibly powerful experience to see the exhibit. And then we made some music for that. And then over the years, we would just kind of revisit it. Al retired from Cincinnati from the conservatory and, and decided that this was one of the projects that he valued and wanted to pursue more. So we and at that time, it was just sort of, this was 2018, was just kind of in the air. We were excited about this again and getting back into it. And so we expanded the piece to be an hour long, and we've been touring it nationally uh, ever since. And uh, like I said, it's a big part of what I do outside of the, the job here. It's, uh, it's planning those tours and doing them and going all over the place for that. So that's like professionally my, my biggest, uh, biggest thing outside of the, the work here at Sam Houston. Well, let's go back to Sam Houston first. So tell me about getting the job there, where you were before then, uh, the status of the program when you entered, et cetera. <laughs> I'll, I'll rewind a little bit because I was at the University of North Texas uh, for my master's degree and had a wonderful experience there, studied with Christopher Dean and Mark Ford and Ed Sof. My colleagues there at the time were a laundry list of uh, college professors now and professional players. And it's amazing to look back on that time and think, you know, Eric Willey and Ejen Fong and Rob Moore and Jason Baker. Uh, I mean, all of these people are so successful. And that was uh, contributed to, to my experience there as well as the great professors that I had at UNT. So um, at the end of my time there, I was thinking, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to um, do the percussion instructor thing in Texas. I wanted to perform and do something different. Um, college teaching was always something that I had in mind that maybe one day I'll want to do that. But I remember uh, near the end, Christopher Dean had encouraged me to take the Marine Band audition in D.C. So I I prepared for that. And, you know, whenever you take a professional audition like that, you you psych yourself up to, yeah, I mean, in order to go do it, you have to believe that you can win it, you know? And yeah. so he had, you know, he had come up and work with me. And so I did that. Didn't even make the first round, just got cut immediately, you know? And I had all this, you know, uh, feeling about, you know, I was going to go in there and do that. And so it was a really good opportunity for me to realize that, oh, you know, I don't think this orchestral thing is really for me. I mean, it was like a, uh, the, the process of working on orchestral excerpts was like incredibly formative and very, very important for technique and, you know, uh, just the work ethic and all of that. I, I love that part of it, but I just, 
I, I, after I did that, I thought, you know, I don't really want to play in an orchestra section for my job. I don't, I don't think I want to do that. I like ideas and creative music making too much. So I was getting to the end of my time. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, we got a call from the University of Wyoming. They were looking for a sabbatical replacement. Steve Barnhart was going on sabbatical. And would there be anyone at UNT? So Christopher Dean came to me and said, hey, you know, um, try this. Maybe this would be something. And so I applied, got the job, moved to Laramie, Wyoming, and spent, it was a full year, spent a full year uh, teaching percussion at the University of Wyoming. And I absolutely loved it. I had a blast. I loved living in Wyoming. It's a beautiful state, big wide open spaces. So I thought, wow, this is maybe this is kind of my foot in the door for college teaching. And I, of course, just, and that was 2004, no, 2000, yeah, 2004, 2005 school year. Of course, as you know, uh, the job market at that time was quite different. I was able to get that job without a doctorate, you know, uh, but I knew that if this was going to be a career that I needed to go study in the doctorate. And actually, I'm sorry, I, I should back up and say previous to that, I had auditioned at the Cincinnati Conservatory before I got the Wyoming job and had been accepted there as a doctoral student. So I went and took the Wyoming job. And then as soon as that was over, I went to Cincinnati and started in my doctorate. I was there for one year. I applied for two jobs thinking I'm perfectly happy. I loved Cincinnati being there in the environment thinking I'll be here, you know, get a couple years under my belt. They have a one-year residency there. So you could take a job after your first year. So I applied for two jobs that year and I got interviews at both and I won the Sam Houston job. And so I came to Al and said, I've got this job offer. What, what do you think? And he said, well, you have to take it. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't say no. If they're offering you a job, you go. Yep. So that was the story of how I got here. And that was 2006. I got here. I think there were maybe four or five percussion majors and it, you know, good kids, but it was a little bit I mean, I don't, I don't want to throw shade, but it was a little bit like the Bad News Bears, you know. I was walking into something that there had, there had been some really good teachers here. Chris Devinney, in fact, taught here before me, but you know, nobody had been here full time in many years. Uh, they had been adjunct, come in a couple days a week, teach lessons, that kind of thing. Uh, so this was the first time that they'd had somebody in in the position of running the percussion area. So that's what I started with. And then within, uh, I think by 2009, we had almost 30 percussion majors and I had, you know, um, and we've kind of been running since then. The pandemic hit us really hard. I don't know how things were for you, but um, pandemic hit us really, really hard. We primarily, uh, students that come here are first generation college students. A lot of them come from uh, lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. We have a very diverse student body and People were hit hard in, in by the pandemic, and so our numbers dropped down, and we're, but we're slowly but surely uh, coming back, and every year since we've been back in person has been stronger every semester, and this semester is no, no different. So I've got, we're, we're close to being back to those pre-pandemic days, but yeah, so that's kind of, that's the whole journey. Good advice. To, you have to take the job. So how did the, of course, yeah, I mean, it's like now, like, yeah, of course, you take the job, but how did they figure out how much else you have to do to finish your doctorate and how long did that take while you were? Oh, okay. Yeah. Good question. So it, it was made clear to me right from the beginning that in order to get tenure, I needed to finish my doctorate. So I had, and I, I didn't come in with any years. Of course, I had just one year of like a sabbatical replacement thing. So it was just made very clear to me that, yeah, you have to um, get this doctorate finished before you can, 
before you can go up for tenure. So I just, I went back to Cincinnati like two summers in a row and did finish the rest of my coursework. And then it was just about doing the exams and document and all of that, uh, the other stuff. I had done actually all of my recitals in while I was in residence there. So I, I was done oh, wow. with that part of it. Right. I did I did the two recitals already. And so I went back and did a lecture recital and finished my document and did all of that. So I was done with my doctorate by 2010, 2011 in that vintage. Uh, so plenty of time, you know, um, and thankfully they were very supportive about that, you know, and letting me, letting me finish that. And I don't think that was for that vent that era. I don't think that was so uncommon for people to be hired that were ABD or, you know, um, now I don't think that's a thing at all. Uh, but then it was, it was, it was a thing. So well, that, that's kind of how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but it, because sometimes what will happen is if you don't have the doctorate, they, they won't let you start even uh, being on the tenure clock until you're done. But it sounds like they allowed you to do that. They allowed me to do that. And I I could be mistaken about this, but I think the rationale was there are other um, departments in our college that the uh, terminal degree was the master's degree. So they were able to make a case that, hey, over in here in this department, this degree, it's a, a, in a, another artistic department, this is the Visual terminal arts, degree. common, if I'm not mistaken. Right, the MFA, right, is yes. the terminal degree. So so they were able to make a case that he's working on the, the doctorate, but he has achieved what would be considered a terminal degree in these other fields. Therefore, I was allowed to go ahead and start the tenure clock. What were facilities like when you got there? Uh, they had one percussion room. I don't know how big it is. It's not very big. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I, you know, the first week on the job, I came in and said, there's no way I can run the kind of percussion program that you would like for me to have here with one one room. It's big enough to fit a five octave marimba, a set of timpani, and there's some shelves. That's it. Within the first year, I was able to to get a few other rooms. I got an office for myself. I got uh, two other practice rooms downstairs. You know, I got some other spaces. Um, yeah. That said, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges with with the job at Sam Houston is, is the space that we have to work with. There's certain, in fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with a colleague, one of our vocal colleagues who came in and he wanted to do one of the George Crumb songbooks pieces and um, I don't know if you're familiar with those pieces, but this is one that has a percussion quartet. And he sent me the instrument list and it's, you know, uh, I don't know, 150 instruments and would need, you know, a, a full stage full of things. And I said, there's just no way I can possibly we don't have I don't even know how I would do it. We would have to leave it set up for three weeks, learn it, play it. And then that would be the only way. And that's just not possible. So it, it is shaped uh, I will tell you this, it has shaped a lot of what I've been able to do with my work and what students are able to do in, you know, with the standard repertoire. There's just some pieces we just can't play, right. you know, unless we just want to dedicate a room and then that disadvantages some other students, you know. So it that's a challenge. And I'm sure that's like that's a challenge everywhere. There's always something. But that's that seems to be our biggest one. Yeah. Equipment wise, we're doing great. We have all the stuff we have every and we uh, let's see when I first got there. Also, we didn't have a performing venue on campus. We had a, a tiny little recital hall that was sort of a couple of blocks away and mm-hmm. the large ensembles would have to perform at a church. So they would load up the uh, truck and drive over. And then 2010, we opened our performing arts center 
and that had uh, that has a 800 seat concert hall, a 150 seat recital hall. Um, we got a little bit of room backstage to keep some gear, but no other additional percussion spaces, unfortunately. But we have beautiful halls to perform in, and and that's a that was a huge improvement when when that came on board. Like I said, that was like 2010, I think. So. Tell me a little bit more about the school, the size, kind of the size of the school, the size of the department, and, and also where you typically are recruiting from. For the yeah, when I got to Sam Houston, I think the school had twelve thousand or thirteen thousand students pre-pandemic. In those years pre-pandemic, the early aughts or whatever, what do we call them? The teens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in those years, we had grown to all, almost or over 20,000 students. So the it has grown significantly. The music department uh in its in its height again pre-pandemic about 500 music majors wow. broken up broken up between mostly music education, we have music therapy and music performance. Uh I would say probably 85 or 80% of the students are music education. That's kind of the main the main thing. Yeah, and so now I think our latest count this year with music majors was in the 350 range. So that that tells you, and the school has dropped down a little bit. I don't I don't know the current number, but it's under 20,000. I'm I'm pretty sure. I would have to I would have to ch- double check those figures for you. But and as far as like in the percussion area, it's I would say it's large about the same percentages, about 80 percent music ed. I always have some performance majors who come here specifically to study with me that not from the Texas area. Oh, and that's the other thing you asked about recruiting. Well, uh, being in Texas, it, it's a it's a great uh, state for music education. I mean, right in my backyard, we have fantastic high school programs in the North Houston area, Oak Ridge High School, College Park, um, all the Klein schools, the Cy Fair schools, terrific percussion programs. That is really where uh, a big percentage of my students come from is from the Houston area. Uh, I do occasionally get students that come from the San Antonio, Austin area or the Dallas area. And that's primarily made up the studio. But I always have a handful of international students or students from out of state. Right now I have a student from Macau. I have a student from Argentina. Uh, My grad student is from Kent. He went to Kent State for his undergrad. He's from Pennsylvania. So there's always a, a smattering of other things in there, but for the large part, it's Texas kids. Oh, so the other thing was to ask about uh, marching band. Is there a marching band component to it? Ah, ah, yes, marching band. I have uh, uh, an expertise in marching band. I, I marched in the Cavaliers back in the day and uh, always was uh, um, you know, very heavily involved with that in high school and, and in the undergrad years, those first few years. Uh, so I have some expertise in that, but as I, you know, our our band director, one of our band directors, Matthew McIntyre, is fond of saying, I don't think anyone goes to get a doctorate in percussion to come and teach drumline necessarily. You know, some people do, and that's fine, but most of us find uh, other other interests and things along the way, and that was the case for me. But when I got the job, it was very clear that the drumline needed to sound good. That's a primary recruiting thing for us. And we're in Texas. We've got to, we got to be good. You know, it's got to work and it's got to sound good. So those first many years, I think until 2008, I was out there on the field, you know, doing all the drumline stuff, every rehearsal, every game, doing the thing and expected to our, my job here is 
they call it a 3-3 load, and, and it, it's research heavy. So there's a research expectation that you're going to be doing sub- substantive and busy research. And so, you know, spending 20 hours a week with the marching band was cutting into my abilities to to maintain that. And I was working on my doctorate, right, at all of that at the same time. So it came to a, it came to a position where uh, I was able to acquire grad assistant. So I got a grad assistant, and um, but the the band guys wanted to have a faculty member still in charge of the drumline. And okay, fine, that makes sense. And I'd built up the program enough to uh, make the case for an adjunct professor. So from two thousand eight, two thousand nine, somewhere in that range. We've had a grad assistant and an adjunct professor, and the adjunct professor's primary, uh, or one of their roles, a big, big part of it is doing the drumline. Time percentage-wise, it's a big part of it in the fall. And so everybody that's held that position, that's kind of been, um, that's kind of been part of it since then. So to answer your question, it wasn't in my contract, but it became very clear when I got here that it was an expectation and yep. and of course like it made sense like this is the thing this is the ensemble that's the most visible on our campus it's the one that high school students are going to look to even though that's not a focus of what we do in the school of music it's a spirit organization for the it's you know for the football team it's not a competitive group so that's kind of our our situation with the marching thing and i have students that are really you know really into it and do wgi and do all of that stuff and um so we have a, we keep a we strike a healthy balance with that here. I think. Does the band travel? They don't. They they do every year. There's like um, we, we've actually just moved into a new, new football conference, and so things are a little bit different. Um, everything's changing now in terms of like when games happen and all of that. So they went to the NRG Stadium down in Houston for one game. They usually always did that for one game. They would go down there. And then usually there's one time a year where the band goes and does an exhibition at a Texas marching, you know, high school marching contest, one of these big contests, they'll go and do the evening exhibition show. Uh, And so that's a really good thing for recruiting, but they generally do not travel. They stay just home games. Well, let's switch back to the innocence and you, you kind of gave a, a background about it, but what ends up being kind of the ways that you, creatively contribute to it because it has kind of the the social justice portion but what what does that mean in terms of kind of artistic output i guess well it's a it's a long story but in one of the things that's difficult about it is how to talk about it (laughs) you know one of the one of the things that we have always had sort of trouble uh with is is telling people what it is that we do when they see it, they get it, you know, but just describing what that is. So, um, but I'll try to, I'll try to explain um, what it is. So what we did in the, in the beginning is we both, you know, we read different books, we researched different things. We had a, Al and I have a very good collaborative working relationship where, you know, one of us will read a book or have an idea for something and we'll come to the other with sort of a half-baked idea. And then the other person is responsible for, you know, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Now, what are you going to do? And we work together and figure it out. So what what we have with this piece, it's an hour long now. It's 17 different tableaus. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and each or movements, if you th- rather, uh, and each one looks at a different facet of the issue of wrongful imprisonment and exoneration. It's a very complex issue. Like I said, we both read and researched on read different books and have had different experiences with it. So we we bring that to the to the fore. And the idea is that the piece is kind of a prism for looking at at this issue. So for instance, we make connections with historical touch points. So for instance, the the idea of mass incarceration as the new slavery. We so we use at one point in the show. Um, so forced labor, right, is one of the things with that. So one of the parts in the show, we have rocks and we break rocks with hammers. And behind us is a uh, recording that I've pieced together from some Alan Lomax field recordings from mm-hmm. Angola prison from the yeah, 1930s. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's in the work there. songs, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. The, they're, and they're breaking rocks on the recordings. And that's what we're, so we're joining in on that. So that's kind of a historical touch point. And then there's there's a, a scene, uh, a, a interrogation scene. So it's, it, you know, because interrogations often lead to false confessions. So there's an interrogation scene. There's a scene we, we played at the Woody Guthrie Center one time. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could weave some little element of Woody Guthrie in there? So I built this instrument called the Kanjo. And we have a little sort of a blues number that I sing in the show. And, and so forth and so on. There's a movement with keys, you know, pr- like prison keys and big concepts like justice and truth and, and time. Uh, so it ranges from the poetic abstract all the way to very specific historical kind of touch points. By the time you take this whole picture at the end of it, you really get a breadth of the sort of, um, you know, what we always say is what art can do is, is speak to the emotional core of the issue. Mm-hmm. So it's not facts and figures, you know, you're not necessarily going to learn uh, a specific fact about this issue, but you'll come away with a feeling about about what, you know, what it means to have some sense of this broader scope of the issue, the emotional touch points of all of those things. So that's kind of what it is. Uh, it's there's a lot of text, a lot of spoken text, all of the all of the instruments, quote unquote, are all found objects, cardboard boxes, rocks, chains, keys, tin cans. You know, we made a decision very early on that we weren't going to be up there playing, you know, $20,000 marimbas. It was going to be all found objects to kind of reflect the poverty of the issue itself, of the people who find themselves in that issue. So that's kind of what it is. We had this problem of like, well, what? It, how do we, you know talk to people about this and get performances of it. And so we've made videos. And then I had a colleague here at Sam Houston who I was telling him about it. I'd, he's a filmmaker and I had helped him with one of his projects. And I said, you know, I've got this other thing. Maybe you might be interested. What we're looking for is just to document it so that we can have something to show people and say, this is what we do. Well, he got so invested in it. He decided to make a full feature length documentary film about it. And that was just in the last couple of years. So that film is is um, been out in in um, you know film festivals and making the circuits. And so one of the things we do also now is we do film screenings at mm-hmm. universities. And so if we're playing somewhere, sometimes we'll just it'll just be a film screening. So, uh, but we're starting to get that incorporated into what we do. And it's helpful to send out to to people and say, take a look at this. That you'll get an idea for what we do. But I, I want to say one more thing about it, which is there's a piece, and, and I think maybe only one time have we really gotten criticism because we're two very privileged white 
guys, uh, you know, working in academia in the ivory tower. And here we are talking about this issue that primarily affects African-American men. What gives us the, the point of view or how can we be careful not to talk over the experiences of, of that uh, population who's really involved with this? And our answer has been um, that over the years, we've actually performed for exonerees. Uh, in the film, in the documentary film, uh, Ana Vasquez is one of the exonerees who features prominently in our film. She's the director of outreach at the Texas Innocence Project and was served uh, 13 years in prison. So her story is in our film. You know, she came to several of our performances and said that you've got it right to the point where I can't see another performance of it. It's too close to the experience, but you keep doing this. Uh, we played for Clarence Harrison, who served 18 years in the Georgia prison system and was exonerated. He came to two of our shows, wanted to come up and hold the hammers and break the rocks and, you know, like huge supporters of what we've doing. So we've we've felt that um, we've been supported by people who have experienced this and who tell us, look, we don't have a voice you as an artist can do something that we can't do. Even people in doing the work, like the Innocence Projects and lawyers, we've done panel discussions and things with them. And and they tell us, look, we can't do the things that you do. We can't speak to the emotional content of this issue. So keep doing it. You know, so we've been really encouraged and have kind of found our role as advocates for this issue. I, I mean, as as uh, un, unusual, I mean, we stumbled into it, you know, but but here it is. So and it's become this many, many, many years of dedicated service to this to this issue. Well, that's great that you've gotten the the feedback that that propels you forward. We'll say, yeah, it you know it feels good in in the age of uh, make you know your br- brand and whatever your your thing is, you know, selling yourself and. Uh, Al likes to always quote Herbert Brune that to to raise your voice for something other than yourself, you know, it feels good. It feels contributive in a way. And uh, it's a way of kind of not separating the art and the work that you do from an issue that you feel is important. And that's another thing that we hope to encourage students when we go to schools to say, you know, this is this doesn't need to be your issue. This is what we've we've found. But find find that for you, what your issue is, and realize that you don't have to have a separation between what you do and the issues that you feel are important. And so I think if there's going to be a legacy for this project, I hope that that's what it is, that it, that it inspires people to make their own, make their own things and contribute in a way that they can. Yeah, that's great. Oh, in the creation of the portion that you are all performing in, is the project still creating new content or have you kind of found the the amount that you're going to kind of keep performing and and you're that's somewhat locked in it's pretty well locked in at this point we've we've had an idea for one new thing but we haven't uh found the the right way in to to make that thing so so it's it's fairly i mean it's pretty well locked in now at this hour-long performance thing with the 17 different movements. Uh, I mean, never say never, we might have an idea or something to improve it or change it. But right now it's, it's pretty well locked in. Uh, before we get started, we, uh, we were talking about your podcast. Yeah. 
and I, as I told John, uh, I did, I got to listen to some of the episodes prior to uh, us uh, talking now. So tell me about your podcast that you did. It seemed like a on and off for about four years and mm-hmm. uh, the genesis of it and some of the things you figured out while doing it. Well, first, I want to commend you for having such a, a wonderful podcast. You're a great listener and and a, a very good interviewer. <laughs> and I've done enough of these to to have an opinion. I feel like I can have an opinion on that. So, congrats to you. Thank you. Uh, now, obviously, in- uh, everyone should know that that's the whole reason that I asked that I brought this question. John <laughs> me. So, mission accomplished. No. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. Uh, we, we, so we were talking earlier and thank you for I, saying that, by the way, I appreciate of it. Of course, of course. Yeah. You know, we were talking earlier and, and you said something like you listen to a lot of podcasts and thought, oh, well, I think maybe I can do that. And I had a similar feeling. I was listening to things and I, I there were every now and then I'd run across a podcast that would have a conversation that would really speak to something that I was deeply interested in, in my artistic life, you know, not just comedy podcast or whatever. Sure. Um, and I thought, wow, that's, I really want to listen to more of that. And I could, I would just not find them. So I thought, well, maybe this is something that I can do for myself there. I had a laundry list of people that I wanted to talk to and was interested in their work. I've always been interested in the larger world of creativity and sort of where percussion can play in that world. So I've had collaborations with poets over the years long, you know, long standing, long collaborations and visual artists and dancers. And I, I just and that was, of course, encouraged when I was at Cincinnati, too. That was a big part of what was done there. So I, I got to really, you know, play in that world, in those worlds. When I made the when I made the decision to make the podcast, it came about for a few different reasons. One was that so that was 2015 when I started it. And it was a sabbatical project, actually. And I had taken the sabbatical to record this big um, Peter Garland, uh, you know, concert, uh, concert length piece. And so I was practicing that all the time. And but I was I was kind of just I burned out a little bit of the, the college teaching thing and just the, the daily grind of just doing it, you know, and I needed a recharge in a way. And I was looking for new collaborations. I was, you know, uh, wanting to see what, what I could get into. And so that was the sort of genesis for this podcast. And so I just put a list together of, of artists that I was interested in, that I wanted to talk to them about their creative process and, you know, kind of how they, how they do what they do. And I just, I did a lot of research for each guest and, you know, got really deep into it. And that's kind of, that's kind of how it all came about. Um, and one of the people that I had on the, so it was, it was a journey really. And I had uh, one of the people that I had, John Roach, a terrific artist in New York city. And John said on the show, he said, you know, even if at the end of this process, whenever you're done with the podcast and put it away. And he said, even at, even that, well, even if you end up doing the exact same thing after this, you will be different because of going on this journey and, 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 having all of these touch points and meeting all of these other people. And it was very much true. And out of that came a number of collaborations. I got to work with John Roach on a collaboration, um, but a number of, of composers and uh, poets and all kinds of things that projects that spun out of that, that podcast. I, it was a wonderful experience. It's a lot of work. I, I know what you have to do in terms of editing and all of that, the work that goes into that. So, um, and I would often put in 
you know, I, I produced it quite a bit. I would put in sound clips and um, there was one show that I did with Tim Preble, who is a sound designer in feature films. That's like what his thing was. And he actually put together this beautiful, you know, show with all kinds of sound effects and, and things. He helped produce that one. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. And it's nice that it, that it's just out there and exists for people to discover, you know? And so, yeah. How did you come up with the name of the podcast? Which you uh, yeah. <laughs> standing in the stream, standing in the stream. Um, it's a, it's a Zen reference. The idea is when you, when you stand in, um, a river, the river is never the same. You know, you can step in a river one day and then you come back the next day and step in that river. It's a different river. It's the water continues, continues to flow. So there was something just very poetic about that and kind of the journey that I was interested in. And the idea is also standing in the stream with someone, you know, that we have this moment in time together and it's very fleeting and ephemeral. And then and then it moves on and they move on and I move on. So that's kind of where it came from. How did you plan either questions did you did you do a did you plan ahead in terms of questions and let them know or did you kind of say we're just going to have conversation and kind of play it by ear there well pretty interesting actually about that because i would i would ask the guest how they would like to proceed I, I, I said I always have – I would have a Google Doc up in front of me with questions, and I would send them the questions and say, you know, I've done – here's some research that I've done. Here are some things that uh, – a script, if you will, for the show that I would uh, kind of go by. But I said, um, if there's anything on here that you don't feel like talking about, let me know. Um, if you just – you know, you can look at these questions in advance if you'd like. And I would just let them kind of tell me how they would like to proceed. But I would always prepare uh, looking at their their work and having some specific pieces or specific questions um, that I could I could go to. But then also just kind of letting the conversation go where it may. You know, we might get into a question and then that that goes on a different tangent and we ask we go off on that and we never got to my original question. So and it was everything in between. And I had one I had one artist one time who. Um, she wanted to prepare all of her answers in advance, and it was very uh, not really a conversation. It was me asking the questions, and she was sort of reading her answers. But they were very beautiful, poetic responses to what I had said, so it it, it worked really well too. And every and it's sort of everything in between. I had comedian on my show, David Huntsberger. Actually, that one's kind of interesting because he has since been back in touch with me to make some music for projects that he's doing and things. So it's little things. You know, I remember his being very much more off the cuff. And as a comedian, you know, I felt like that that was sort of right for him. So, yeah, everything in between. But that's that was kind of the process. Did you have a plan for like because the, most of the episodes, if, if I was looking, were ended up being kind of in like the 45 minute kind of zone. Did you was that kind of the plan to keep it at that distance or did you were you like, ah, if they go shorter or longer? Or much longer, you're like... Yeah, just out of uh, kind of sensitivity to the time of the guest, I would say, you know, I, I try to keep it to about an hour. Um, and just, I, I've i noticed that with podcasts, they tend, they've tend they tended to just be shorter and shorter <laughs> these days. Um, so, 
people's attention spans and whatever was standing. But, and I noticed you're, you sometimes break them up into part one, part two. And so I would do that too, just because, you know, a two hour podcast is a long time. It's a long sit for someone. Uh, so I would often just try to keep it to about an hour because that's a good, that's a good attention span moment. The last one, your last episode, it didn't sound like, it sounded like you were, this was going to continue. <laughs> yeah. And then that was the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny how that works, huh? Yeah. Um, what was the last episode? Uh, the singer and the composer. It was like oh, during right, the right. fest. It was right after Libby Larson. I can't remember their yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had Libby Larson. It was our, um, yes, we had a contemporary music festival here. Tony Boutte was my that colleague was here from San Houston State. Yeah, wonderful artist. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I always intended to keep it going. And then just other projects that was in 2018, I think. And that was right when we were getting Innocence off the ground again. And that has just, that just consumed all of my energy and extra time. So all the time that I would have to edit podcasts, I was writing emails to try to get Innocence tours lined up. And it just, on some level, and, and, you know, and some people like, maybe you'll just continue doing this podcast for years and years, but at some level, it just felt like it kind of, I mean, I still have a list of people that I'd love to talk to. And I, I keep thinking, well, one day I'll get back to it, you know, but it just felt like it, it was time to do other things. And the beauty of it is it's still sitting there and I can easily just pick it right back up again. So, yeah, you know, I have the, I know how to do it at this point. So it's just a matter of having the time and, and energy to do it. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, John, let's back up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in central Texas. Um, my whole extended family is from a little town called Heiko, Texas. I lived with my mother about 20 minutes north of there called Stephenville, Texas. Uh, and so that's, that's where I grew up. So did you have any family members in the arts? Uh, well, my dad uh, played guitar. He taught me to play, you know, cowboy chords, and he wrote songs and cowboy played. Con- <laughs> like yeah, that. yeah, you know, G, C, E minor, E. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, he taught me to play all those open chords, and so I played guitar with him. Uh, my uncle played drums, and my music. My family's yeah, very musical. They are always very musical. I have some cousins that I think, man, they could have been really really fine drummers and and percussionists if they wanted to, you know, they went off in other directions, but they all had sort of a musical aptitude. But yeah, my dad played country music. And it's funny thing, like looking back on it, um, in Heiko is a a really tiny town. I I don't remember the the populations, you know, less than, you know, it's like 2000 or something. It's a tiny little town. When growing up, my dad and some of his friends uh, would get together and go play on the town square like every Saturday night. And they would go and play song. And sometimes they'd have an audience and sometimes they would just, you know, he had a building downtown and they would just play for fun. And so when I was there with him, I would, I would go and sometimes I would take my drums and, and play with them. And I mean, that just, that's a rarity now. I mean, I don't know anybody that does that. So uh, that was really, that was the way I grew up is just playing, you know, it's mostly like country music and things. So I, um, there's a picture of me when I was like three and they had, um, they had bought me a drum set, one of the like, paper heads, you know, so there's a picture of me playing the drum. So I, I really don't remember a time when I didn't have drumsticks in my hands and there's pictures of me with headphones on. Dad said I would 
uh, my dad passed away a few years ago, but you know, one of the legacies of him is just his love of music. And he has pictures of me, like putting headphones on me when I was a baby of probably listening to Willie Nelson or something, you know? So I, I kind of mainstreamed or mainlined Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and all of those yeah. things, uh, back in, in those days. Well, that's how I grew up. Yeah, and then my uncle, I remember I told my students this all the time. Like my uncle was a drummer and I remember being fascinated by the hi-hat, how it would just come up and down in the pedal. And I couldn't wait to get in there and play with the hi-hat, you know, when I was a kid. But yeah, that, that's how I grew up. So always around music. And then when I got into sixth grade band and I, I tell my students this too, I remember uh, it's important to remember that beginner's mind that you have from the very, you know, when I got my drum, uh, you know, my drum, my snare drum and my bell kit and how excited I was to like get it out and mess with it and play with it and yeah. you drive, drive my mom crazy with it in the house and stuff. And then, I, and then I think it was maybe middle school. I got my first drum set. I got one of those banana yellow pearl export series drum sets. And the house that we lived in at that time, I lived with my mom at that time. And we had this like, I guess you would call it a, a mother-in-law cottage in the backyard. You know, it was like a, an extra room that the people had built off the house. Yep. And I set my drums up in there and I would just play for hours. I'd put on the headphones and play at that time, of course. And I was into, I had some friends that had, you know, like garage bands and things. So we were playing Nirvana and Metallica and whatever. And so I knew all of those songs, you know, I would just play them mm -hmm. on my drums and bash away for hours and hours on end. So that's how I grew up. Yeah. No wonder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how does the more versus the kind of the the you know playing in garage bands and playing in your you know country stuff how does the more formal side of your Yeah. Well, it was a teacher. Uh it was it was a teacher. Um Larry Lawless, my first percussion teacher in high school. And he started talking about the PAS and the Percussive Arts Society. And um, a friend of mine, I don't remember if you've had him on your show or not, Phil O'Banion. Um, uh, no, Phil, I know who he is, but I, I've never had him on. Okay, well, so Phil was a freshman when I was a sophomore. We went to high school together. Oh, okay, yeah. And Phil was an extremely dedicated percussionist, took lessons from early age. I, I didn't take lessons till I was in high school and even then sort of sporadically. But he was always very, very serious, forced you know, four-year All-Stater. Um, and so I had I had Phil as a good friend and saw what he was doing. And then Larry Lawless was uh, was our teacher, our percussion teacher. And um, he introduced us to PAS and percussion ensemble and playing mallet keyboards and, and, other, and other things, lots of other things. Drum set, um, got some more instruction on playing jazz with him. And uh, he was really into, you know, playing jazz vibraphone as well. So I heard some of that and playing hand drums. And, you know, it was this whole world just sort of started to open up to me in high school. Yeah. And then um, Phil, uh, his dad would drive us to PASIC. So I think we went to PASIC every year when I was in high school. He would pile us into their minivan. Uh, my parents really couldn't afford to to do that. And so, um, thankfully, he had the support from from him. So he would pile us up in the car, and we would drive to Nashville. I remember driving in Nashville one year. I was ninety six or something like that. And then once I was once I had PAS in my life, then that was that was it. You know, then the the floodgates opened, and that was that was what I wanted to do. So that was the journey. When do you do uh, drum corps? The marching stuff, I mean, I was always really interested in that in high school. 
Stephenville High School is a 4A school. I, I don't know what that means in terms of other other places, but it's it's not the biggest school in Texas. It's it's a lower tier school. And um, so do and, they go up to 6A in Texas? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So a moderately sized school. And, you know, we just didn't have as many resources as some of these big high powered, you know, band programs did. So but we had a great teacher and uh, he had taught some drum corps. And so he was interested in sh- teaching us about that. And so I went to see DCI shows and I just got really into it and practiced a lot. That's kind of how I got into it. And then so I went the first audition that I took was in when I was, I think, freshman year of college. And I went and auditioned. Uh, I think it took me two or three times auditioning before I got into the Cavaliers. But that was the only place that I wanted to go. I wasn't interested in doing it if I couldn't be in the Cavaliers. So that's I just waited until I could <laughs> until I could do it. And I guess I sort of had a sense that that was the best place for me and where I would get what I needed to get from the activity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's very edu- educationally minded and. Um, I had really good teachers there, uh, Mike McIntosh, Brett Kuhn. I mean, the genius of 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 those two guys alone. You know, um, I learned a lot uh, there. So, and I learned a lot just you know going to the camps and stuff too. Did you just do the one year, or did you do it multiple years? I did just one year because by the time I made it, I was I was too old to keep going. <laughs> so I got the one in, but it was a good year. You know, we 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 won the Fred Sanford award that year and tied for first with the cadets and had a great experience. Actually, we just had um, Andy Akiho was our guest composer. And I hadn't realized that he was in the cadets the same year that I was in Cavaliers. I think he had done it multiple years, but we were uh, marching at the same time. So it was fun to reminisce about those, those days. Yeah. But yeah. And I've kind of just, you know, I've moved away from that activity uh, quite a bit in my own work and stuff, but it's, it's still very formative for me. You know, that was a big, that was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember what the show was that you did? Yeah, it was Niagara Falls. Oh, it was, it was the first of those kind of the dynasty of Cavaliers in the early 2000s there. And they just kept on winning after that and doing placing really high and doing really well. But it was the first big, big one. Um, after I guess 99 was also a really big year. Now, while you were doing all of these other activities uh, p- prior to college, were you involved in anything else? Were you doing any sports or student government or church related or mathletes or anything that was a long time? <laughs> Not a darn thing. Uh, all, I did, <laughs> all, I, all I wanted to do was play drums. All I wanted yeah. to do was play drums. And that's all I did. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you end up at was Stephen F. Austin? Is that where you did your... Yeah, I did. Well, and funny thing about that is uh, we would, Phil and I would go to the, Stephen F. Austin used to have what they called the Sounds of Summer, um, summer camp, a Yamaha endorsed summer camp. Yeah. And we would go and this was, you know, I don't think any place really does, does it quite like this anymore, but they would have uh, just an all-star cast of teachers there. Uh, mm-hmm. Norm Weinberg was there. You know, mm-hmm. Chris Hanning was there every year because he was the professor there at the time. Doug Walter from the University of Colorado. Uh, Bob McCormick from Florida. You know, all of these master teachers would convene in this one place. They had a high school track. And so Phil and I, every summer, would go make the trip over there and and do it. And I thought that that's what college was going to be like, <laughs> you know, I thought it was going to be like that. And so that, and I just didn't have a clue really, you know, but it turns out it was a great, it was a good place for me to start. 
I had a great teacher. Scott Harris was my teacher in undergrad. Mm, And, uh, we, uh, he, he was wonderful, a great mentor and teacher for me. And I, you know, I, I grew a lot there and it was a good place for me. I could, you know, I played in every single ensemble and practiced till, you know, the wee hours every day, just, I just hit it hard and there was no other distractions. There's nothing else to do there. So, you know, it was really good for me. But I just, that's how I got there is I went to the summer camp and I thought, oh, this is what college is going to be like. I should, I need to come here, you know? So good, good recruiting on their part, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that was, that was Chris Hanning too. You know, I don't know if you, uh, uh, if you know Chris, but just a phenomenal drum set player and uh, all around percussionist, just amazing. And so I, I still to this day have things that I learned in those summer camps, you know, that I, that I practice and, and play and work with, with students. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you get there, what are the things in your own playing that you you find out that you need to catch up on or just improve on? All of those years of high school, middle school and high school, you know, playing drum set and, and rudimental snare drum, those were my two areas that I was really strong in. The orchestral playing, the, the mallet playing, you know, all of that stuff I had to really uh, catch up with uh, pretty pretty early on. I really focused on that for uh, for those years, uh, working on uh, you know getting my keyboard and my timpani playing. I, I remember uh, that being a. I, I took some lessons with Christopher Dean, and he set me straight on timpani uh, before I went to UNT. He had come because we still did those summer camps in the summer, yeah. and they had a college track. So you know, I I really got lots of good instruction on all those things. And we had we had Chris one year to come, and um, I took some timpani lessons and. You know, I, I really got that figured out there as well. So just a lot of a lot of woodshedding on on mallets and and all the orchestral things. Um, I could already, you know, the drum set stuff. I could already I could already do okay. That's those were the areas that I need to improve on. But the thing I learned, I guess, the thing I learned is that I never really, and I sort of never really specialized even in grad school. I kind of still kept doing everything. You know, at UNT, I was one of the few people that. Um, one of the few, you know, classical percussion majors that was in Ed Sof's drum set studio, you know, so like I, so I was taking three lessons a week at UNT, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd take a lesson with, with uh, Mark Ford, and then Christopher Dean on timpani or recital stuff, and then a lesson with Ed Sof. I just never gave up doing that. And then when I went to Cincinnati, same thing. I didn't take drum set lessons there, but I played in the jazz ensembles at Cincinnati and played in the orchestra and did everything else. So I just, um, I think it served me well as a college professor because I, because I didn't really specialize in anything. I can kind of do everything. And so that's, that served me well, I think for my students, you know, and I, and also, you know, it was a good college teaching was a good fit because I, I enjoyed living in all those worlds, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. What was the ensemble, either large ensemble or percussion ensemble experience like in undergrad? I played in everything. I played in the, uh, the orchestra, the wind ensemble, the steel band, the percussion ensemble, the jazz ensemble, the opera. I, anytime there was anything uh, to volunteer for, you know, yeah. I raised my hand and said, okay, I'll do that. So I just, I did everything. Yeah. There was, there was nothing, nothing I didn't do. Was the studio small enough that it was that basically, I mean, this is not, this is not an uncommon thing with at some undergrad where it's like, if you're the person 
who's responsible and is going to do everything, then you end up doing everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, there. I think there was probably some element of that because I was like one of the more responsible people who practiced all the time, you know, and yeah. was just there all the time. So I think there was some leaning on. But but it wasn't like I never felt put upon to like you have to do these things. I was always, and I remember one. There was one time uh, that it was actually really cool. They they their orchestra there is a, kind of a semi professional orchestra, yeah. uh, orchestra of the pines. I think is what it was called at the time. So it was basically the the principal chairs were filled by the professors. Mm-hmm. And and then the sections, the wind, brass, and percussion sections were filled out by students, and then they would hire a string section. Uh, and so yeah. then so it was like a semi it was like a professional gig, you know, it wasn't yeah. like regular rehearsals. We had we'd have, you know, a couple of weeks of rehearsal and then we'd play some shows. And so for that, it was a really great professional uh experience for me. But I remember one one time we we had played some concerts, not on campus. They were off somewhere we had to travel to and drive back in. I hadn't got to practice that day. And so uh, after the orchestra concert, I just stayed in the percussion room, you know, took off my tux jacket and mm-hmm. just started practicing. And Scott Harris came in and said, what are you doing? It's Friday night. Like, go have fun. Get out of here. You know, what are you doing? I was like, no, nah, I didn't get to practice today. I got to, you know, I got to yeah. do this thing. So, uh, which all of us that, you know, we probably had a similar experience. I mean, I've talked to so many people who are high achieving in their fields. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we did too. You know, (laughs) only learned later about having a work life balance is important, you know, and, uh, I I have to say something about that too, that it's really to, to be like perfectly honest, it's only within, it's only since the pandemic did I really take my physical health seriously, mm. you know, and starting to, that physical fitness became a really important part of my life. Um, and uh, I wish I had gotten that memo, you know, 20 mm. years ago, sure. uh, because that, that makes, uh, well, it just improves your energy level and your, your uh, so many things. It's so, so good to be, you know, physically fit and healthy. Yeah. Well, what, prompted you to go ahead and start working on that fear (laughs) um stress and fear from the pandemic because we were hearing reports that people who were uh overweight were at a higher risk category and i've always been sort of over my whole adult life sort of overweight and varying you know uh, over the years uh, more or less and so i thought wow i need to i need to address this and so I, um, of course, we were home all the time. And we have, at the time, my son was in kindergarten and he was preschool and kindergarten when the pandemic was raging yep. and we were home all day. So he needed to also move around and we needed to find things for him to do. And so we started biking every day. We would go biking. And eventually that turned into, you know, biking longer and longer distances until we were going out to the state park like every day riding you know, these very, uh, lots of elevation changes, you know, long, long bike rides every day. And I just kept doing it every day and then eating less. And before I knew it, I'd lost 60 pounds. That, that was the, that was the start of it. And then once we started going back, you know, I've been reading uh, a book, I read a book uh, recently about time management and it was talking about, it was written like in 2021. So just on the heels of having, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, getting through the last, you know, uh, the, we were still in the pandemic, but we were thinking about the great pause and people were going back to work and all of this. And what things will we carry over into our lives mm-hmm. from this experience? And for me, it has been a absolute priority for physical fitness. I made my I make my teaching schedule in such a way where every morning I have time to work out, whether that's uh, uh, walking or running or biking. And, and I've gotten into lifting weights li- uh, recently in the last you know, uh, year, uh, six months. And I just do it every day. And it's just, now it's just a lifestyle thing. Now it's like, I don't feel right if I don't do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, there's just so many good benefits to it. So that's one of the things that I held on from the pandemic. Oh, that's great. What, what is the book? What's the book that you were referencing? Oh, it was called, it's called 4,000 Weeks. That's, I, my wife has been reading that. That's why. Yeah. I, and I've seen uh, other people around school, like have access to that book. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. There's a lot of, um, I, I have practiced Zen Buddhism for, for many years, meditation. And there's a lot of things in that book that I've read before in other contexts, like in Zen books, you yeah. know, um, so there's a lot, but, but it's very good, um, and uh, it's, it was a pretty easy read. I think I sat down and read it in like two sittings, you know, just read right straight through it. Uh, but it, yeah, it was good. I had some good takeaways. But, you know, this idea of like, what will we keep? What will we keep from this experience of being paused, you know? Um, and and there, he has some really beautiful uh, sentiments about that. Like, it is possible to have to for things to change. It is possible to make changes in your life and keep them. You know, you just have to decide that that's what's important. And yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Do you head to UNT after for a master's? After undergrad, yep, I went straight to UNT. Um, and I yeah was. Well, first off, what was the the culture shock of of being around a billion other percussion majors like? Yeah, we had 150 percussion majors. I think honestly, I I don't know if I would have done well there as an undergraduate because it's so it's so easy to just be, you know, kind of lost in the crowd if you're if you're sort of you know, if you're at the very top of your game, then you'll rise to the ranks, but you know, when I was there, it was it was all graduate students and all the ensembles that I was in, it was all grad students. I think we had one undergraduate in the whole time that I was there that played in the wind symphony on, you know, like one, one semester or one, even one concert or so as an extra or something like that. It was not a regular thing. Yeah. Um, and of, of the whole wind symphony was all grad students. I mean, with maybe a, like, I don't know, 5% undergrads or something. So um, I guess, you know, one, one of the very first experiences that I had at, at UNT was playing in the Wind Symphony and recording 50 of the world's greatest marches. These were all just marches from all over the world, you know, from European and American primarily marches. But I remember Jason Baker was the section leader that semester and he assigned all the parts. And I remember the way he did it, which made sense at the time, like, so we did two or three hour blocks of recording and then you take a break and then you come back in and do another two or three hours. Yeah. And so he said, okay, for this two hour block, you know, you'll be the snare drummer, you'll be the bass drummer, you'll be the cymbal player. And so I remember, I don't remember which session it was, but I remember playing bass drum and 
the red light comes on and Eugene Corporan is staring me down and here we go. We're playing the marches. I've never, I've never experienced the level of, you know, the microscope and the, you just all of a sudden, here's the level you got, you got to get there. And it it wasn't hard to play bass drum on the march, but like, if you ever doubted that you could keep steady time, (laughs) you know, playing a bass drum on a march, that was the moment, the big red light. And here's Corporan staring me down and he's looking at me, you know, like we're together. (laughs) But it was great. It was a great experience. It was wonderful because I learned so much from my colleagues. I learned as much from my colleagues as I did from my teachers. And it was a very supportive environment. Everybody was looking out for everybody. Um, you know, it wasn't like cutthroat competitive kind of thing. It was very much a family kind of environment. And, uh, you know, I got to go back recently and play. We had Christopher Dean's, uh, Memorial Celebration of Life. Uh, was it last year? It was wonderful to be back on campus and feel that, feel that family energy vibe again. So yeah, it was really, really formative place. And I can't say enough wonderful things also about, about the faculty. I mean, um, Christopher Dean in particular was a, a wonderful mentor of mine. Uh, and, and Mark Ford as well. I would call him up all the time and with career things and questions and, uh, but uh, just dear, dear, dear teachers. And I, I don't think I've ever had, uh, I mean, Ed Sof drum set lessons. Uh, I mean, one of the best teachers of anything ever, you know, was Ed Sof. So I had, yeah, great experience there. Yeah, awesome. What kinds of things were either similar or different among the teachers at UNT or even, you know, versus, you know, taking from Scott or or even, you know, learning from the Cavaliers? What kinds of things were similar or different between the various teachers you'd had? Ooh. It's hard to say. I mean, everybody was so different, you know. With Mark Ford, uh, I learned about you know, deep, deep musicianship and expressivity. That's kind of what we worked on a, a lot, singing and breathing. And and then from Ed Sof, I learned uh, movement and, you know, how your anatomy works with your tools. And that was a really key, key part of my study with him. And with Christopher Dean, uh, you know, I learned uh, about about art, how to be an artist, you know, what is artistry? And uh, of course, all the timpani stuff was fabulous too. But like, you know, we'd have long conversations about John Cage. And that's what really led me to Cincinnati to to discover the work of percussion, uh, the Black Earth Percussion Group and and Al's work. And and then and then once I got there, I was off to the races. But um, and then Scott was, you know, my undergrad, you know, it was very nurturing for me, kind of edging me towards, you know, try this, try that which is just the exact right thing for an undergraduate, you know, it was, it was great. So, but it was all very, very different experiences. You know, the year that you taught in Wyoming, uh, was there a, and I, I want a similar question to you being in Cincinnati, which is, was there like a, Oh, I'm not in Texas anymore situation oh, yeah. in both of those environments. Oh yeah. Uh, for sure. Especially Wyoming because yeah. I mean, I was very, very, very green at that time. I, I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, I can't even imagine. But um, yeah, it was just really different. But the what I found with the students in Wyoming, they didn't have the same back. I mean, they didn't have the same musical education, you know, background that some of these Texas students have in terms of technical development, you know, uh, that I get students here who are very technically advanced. But 
but need a lot of growth musically, uh, musical literacy and that type of thing. The students there were just like sponges. They just, they knew that they didn't have all the information and they were ready to receive it from you. And they were, they worked really hard. And I just, I found it to be incredibly rewarding and, and just so different from being in Texas where, you know, sometimes even kids come in and they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder if they've, you know, they've, they were an all-stater and they did this and they've done that. Um, there it was definitely not that they knew that they didn't they knew what they didn't know and they were very hungry for the information in cincinnati it was just uh just a different i mean uh i'd never lived in a big city like that before so that was a, a real different thing and uh of course i i didn't do a lot there i was just at the school all the time you know but it was just a very a very different um a very different place living in a big big city like that yeah how about the weather adjustments to both places? Uh, Wyoming was amazing. They don't have any bugs until until July, and then the mosquitoes <laughs> are like the size of hummingbirds. Okay, but <laughs> but otherwise, I, I I love the weather in Wyoming. I mean, it's it was windy all the time, um, yeah. but they and you know they didn't get as much snow as I expected there to be, uh, but it was it was beautiful. I just loved it there. Um, yeah. Uh, Cincinnati is gray for most of the year, but they have seasons, which is nice. We don't have that in Texas. Well, we have two seasons in Texas, hot and not as hot, you know, right. but, <laughs> but in Cincinnati, they actually had seasons. So in the spring, you know, the buds would come out, there'd be beautiful flowers and the fall, the leaves turned brown and, and it was beautiful. It was, it was really nice. Al lives on some uh, acreage outside of Cincinnati and it was always fun to go out to his house, but at different times in the season, uh, you know, you get a lot of snow out there, actually. Um, and that was a, a, I just remember the seasonal changes there being really, really nice. It's nice to have seasons. You know, knowing you were at Cincinnati for a year, I know it's it's because of the fact that there's multiple people at Cincinnati with mm. the there. How, did would, did you go and you were like, I'm studying with Al? Or was it like you get a choice or you get to sample everybody there? Yeah, it's it's actually the other way around. They they sort of hand select students for their studios. Okay. So so like I I went there specifically because I was interested in studying with Al, and I I had expressed that and made that you know uh, expressed that to them, and so then it was I was sort of in Al's studio, and that's kind of how it works, especially for undergraduates. They have they sort of hand select. The students that are going to be so Jim's and Rusty and Al, you know, you're either with one or the other of them, um, yeah. and you're there's not a lot of cross pollination. You're a Jim student, you're a Rusty student, you're an Al student, and they, you know, and, and but of course within the students there was lots of cross. You know, we would discuss and have lots of cross pollination and things, but within their respective studios, it was very much you you were with one of them. With doctoral students, with grad students, it was a little different. I definitely took some lessons with Jim and had, you know, great experiences and, and took some jazz vibes with Rusty. And so, you know, I did that a little bit when I was there, but I was I was Al's primary responsibility, you know, to guide me through the process. It was his it was his job. And and that's really um, you know, he was the person that I was that I went there to to really be with and wanted to spend all the time with. So uh that but that's how it works there. Yeah. So uh yeah. When you when you were studying with him, you know, what what kinds of things were you do you work with him on since you know you've had this training at UNT and kind of all the stuff that you've done? So like what's 
what had you done a lot of stuff that was you know more of the um i don't know avant-garde avant-garde yeah well that's what i was that's what i was itching to do yeah Uh, i had done on my senior recital or not my senior recital at my master's recital at unt i had uh I had been reading John Cage for for years at that point, and Christopher Dean definitely encouraged that. Um, and so I had done um, Child of Tree on my master's recital, and I had done uh, George Crumb, Idol for the Misbegotten. Um, yeah. So I'd done those pieces. And, you know, Chris had a relationship with George Crumb, and he said, you know, you really should go study with Al uh, at Cincinnati. And, he, of course, Chris had gone there and studied with him. So he said, you know, you really need to go get get to the source because I can tell that this is a a passion and an interest of yours, new music and and doing this kind of creative thing. So you should you should definitely go there and and study with him. So by the time I got there, I'd had that year in Cincinnati and I had made some of my own pieces with texts and things. I'd gotten interested in that, worked with Ann McCutcheon, who's a poet, a writer, and we had made some pieces together. And um, so when I first got there, I was studying percussion and also taking composition lessons. And so I remember one of the first lessons that I had with Al was, well, I did a lesson on on the cage, Child of Tree, because I already had that prepared. And I said, I'd love to play this for you. So we had a you know, two, two, three hour conversation about cage and looking at this piece and talking about all that stuff. And I was just, I was a kid in a candy store at that point. You know, I just, I was finally getting to sink in my teeth into the, this this music and this intellectual, you know, high artistic avant-garde environment. And I was just like supercharged about it. Um, and then, but one of the first lessons that I had was a piece that I had written with, with Ann McCutcheon called Possible Paths. It was a narrative poem that I had set some percussion stuff to. And when, when we did it together, she would read the text and I played the percussion sounds. But I adapted it for myself to be able to do it. And, and so I wanted to show Al because I had... I had been listening to his uh, piece. He has a, a recording with Mara Helmuth called Implements of Actuation. And there's a piece on there called As an Algebra, which is uh, based on a poem by Don Bogan. And I love that piece. And I would listen to it over and over. And I would think, wow, someday I hope I could make something like that. So I adapted this piece. I came in for my lesson, you know, and I played it. And one movement, it talks about, a, it's a narrative poem, and it talks about there's a rainstorm, uh, something. And so I had figured out that if I took these seed pod rattles and played them on the bass drum in just a certain way, it really sounded like thunder and rain. And it, it really did. I, I, or at least I thought it did. You know, so I did this. I played the whole piece, and I got done. And Al just starts laughing. He's just laughing. And I'm thinking, oh, God. You know, I was already, like, putting my... Uh, you know, bearing my soul to be able to play this, you know, if you've ever written a piece, anybody that writes music experiences this at some point, is that this is your thing that you've made, and now you're going to show it to the world, and there's a huge vulnerability and all of that that's involved with this. So here I was bearing, you know, to this guy that I had you know, the most respect in the world for, and and he's laughing at me. Oh, God, I'm a failure. He's laughing, you know. Uh and then he came over and, and he sort of, uh, he, he was really interested in what I was doing on the bass drum. And then we just had this, you know, probably two hour conversation about what was working and how I did this. And he asked questions and uh, he, he told me later, he said, well, if I was laughing, it was probably because I was happy. <laughs> and, so, um, and so then that's our relationship from then on. And we were so close. In fact, I, he was just here. He just left this morning. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we've been doing Innocence this week and recording some pieces of a composer, Rachel Walker, that he works with. So uh, we just have a, a dear friendship these days. And uh, But it started from the very beginning of just uh, being open and honest and vulnerable. And, uh, you know, Al's, he's maybe the one of the most creative people I've ever known. You know, he just he just lives it. And uh, it's it's very inspiring to be around him. All right, John, well, I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. First question is, and this is not random, but what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? <laughs> I'm trying to don't burn any bridges here, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I, I guess one thing that I would say is, because I, I spent time, you know, studying composition and taking it really seriously and not not thinking of composition as a way to advance my career, but but as a way to say something that without me couldn't be invented, that, that a, a particular perspective or or some elements that are coming together for me that I put together and I couldn't couldn't find. So I guess what I would say is my method of, of working, there, there are a lot of percussionists who are composers. And I think that's, uh, makes sense because we're, we, a composer will never know as much about our instrument as we will. They just, they just, it's just impossible. We've lived with it. We've got all, all our whole collection of instruments and mallets and techniques and all of that stuff. But I think one of the problems is that percussionists who sometimes make pieces, they, there's not a compositional aesthetic behind it. It's just standing at the marimba or whatever and playing playing licks and then sort of writing it down and then marketing it as, you know, selling themselves as an artist or something. And and that that bothers me because I I don't do that because I don't I I think of composition as I have an idea, something that I want to do, something that I want to say, then I go on a search. And I see if I can find a piece that does that thing. And after an exhaustive search, if I can't find something that does that, then and only then am I going to write a piece. I'm not going to just stand and, and play paradiddles on the marimba and then sell that to somebody as, hey, come come have me as a guest artist so I can come play paradiddles on your marimba faster than you can, you know? I, I, so... That that always kind of rubs me the wrong way about uh, about our our field, and I don't I don't have a good solution for it. I think if percussionists who want to be composers studied composition, that would be a good that would be a good and healthy thing to do. Um, but I also think there's plenty of room for percussionists who write pieces that we use in pedagogy that are vital, vitally important pieces that use a particular technique or something like that. And we use those pieces to teach with. Those are invaluable. We need those pieces. But when it's passed off as um, a career advancement kind of thing, I don't know that it just it, it bothered when it's not there for the art making itself. And that rubs me the wrong way. If I could tag on one more thing to that, I would say that one of the biggest challenges that I have with my students these days is that the the WGI activity is so prevalent and takes up so much of their time and energy. I have students yeah. who go every single weekend to these rehearsals. I think we we sh should try and strike a better balance with that. I, I mean, and I tell them, hey, um, 
that's great if you're doing that, as long as you can keep up with your studies here and as long as you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing here, that's extracurricular. And I did it when I was your age. I did DCI. I did all that. So I understand it. But I also did all of my work that I needed to yeah. do. You know, it wasn't at the expense of. And I think there's some something about the the culture of, of particular groups that that that, you know, that becomes the driving thing in education. And what we're doing here is sort of. Well, that's okay. That's secondary or something. So those are my two things, I guess, if I had to pick. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, both of those are great points. And I, I was thinking more about the composition part where I think I, I hadn't thought of it in terms of like the means to an end, but I, I certainly, I understand that viewpoint. I was thinking about also how it's, it's sometimes you you want i think this gets into the studying composition that it, i think it's really important to try to listen to just every type of music so that you're like there's there can be a, a way that that a writing can just reflect your experience of playing the stuff you've played and that's that's as much as you have like really listened to yeah you know? Yeah, yeah. Listening is and being aware of different kinds of repertoire and different music. I mean, that's that's a problem, don't you find, with your students uh, that a kind of lack of curiosity. I find that, and uh, and this is maybe only in the last maybe ten years that uh, students are just not quite as curious as they used to be. And I think that's translated into the professional ranks as well. Um, I don't know if it has to do with distractions of our modern, you know, cell phones and YouTube. And I don't know if it's that, but um, there's something about just being curious and following, following your curiosity and see where it leads. You know, that's, that's how I, I mean, that's how I discovered John Cage. I found some, you know, I found his, his book silence and I read it and I thought, wow, that it just made me curious. And I, then I went deeper and deeper and that got me into all kinds of other things. So there's, I know that there's an element of that because there's of the ways that if you know if you listen to if you watch a lot of YouTube or on Spotify that they curate the stuff so yeah. like you don't it's not it's when we were in undergrad and grad school you had to actually go find the stuff yeah you know and and I think and so that builds up the muscles to do that yeah yeah it's sort of like if all information is equal and available then all information is the same. You know, all information is valued the same. If everything's just there at your fingertips, then it's all sort of all equal in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I would say about the composition thing is, I think, you know, one one good thing that for for those students or even in the professional ranks is to find composers to collaborate with because even if you're not going to be a, you know, if you have no interest in being a composer yourself, there are lots of composers that need collaborators and would make really interesting work if they had access to a percussionist who could show them, mm -hmm. you know, and work with them on, on things. All right, I'll get to some other, some different fun questions. Has, okay. anyone, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, God. Uh I have no idea. They probably do this behind my students probably do this behind my back. I have no idea. <laughs> so far as I know, it hasn't. But we all have impressions of uh, of Al and Christopher Dean and Mark Ford and Ed. So we all have our <laughs> impressions. So did you yeah. do did you do your impression for Al 
Or oh yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> and he's like, uh, "You're doing me again, or something like that?" Or no, it's just uh, and, you know. I mean, we have we're so close and work together all the time. Yeah. You know, it, it. Yeah, yeah. It's just in, but yeah, yeah. I've done I've done I've done my Aladdin impression for him before. <laughs> Did you like it? Yeah. No, I think so. He gets it. You know, he, he, he knows. He, <laughs> He, he knows he's a, a very particular way of, of, of speaking and being, and you know, it's endearing. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I have no idea. You don't still own like snow boots from Cincinnati, do you? Actually, um, <laughs> funny enough, uh, I had a pair of boots, snow boots that I, that I bought when I was in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, I haven't needed them here until the last couple of years when we had the snowpocalypse down in Texas. You remember right. that from a couple of years ago. I pulled them out <laughs> during that. Hadn't, I mean, this was like, these are 20 year old shoes, you know, yeah, yeah. I pulled them out, put them on. We went outside. I went outside with my son to play in the snow and my shoes started to disintegrate. <laughs> and like, literally, <laughs> like, so I guess that would count as the most impractical. Why would you hang on to 25 year old snow boots? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? I love cooking. I'm a huge, huge cook, follow all kinds of podcasts, and uh, I, I'm a big, big guy in the kitchen. I love, love cooking. Biggest mishap? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I can't think of one. I can't think of a good one. That's good. That just means it's 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 locked in and stellar every time. Yeah, I mean, I've I gotten real serious. I, I can tell you a cooking anecdote, anecdote yeah. uh, to sure. kind of show you what how how I am about cooking. Not last year, but the year before, we hosted Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. We hosted my wife's family. And I said, you know, I we would love to host. And we invite you all here. Here's what I will do is I'm going to make a vegetarian feast because we're vegetarian. And uh, I, I will be responsible for doing the menu, doing the whole planning, doing everything. And everybody is welcome to help. Uh, because they're, of course, everybody wants to jump in and help in the holiday, you know, at, at Thanksgiving to help in the kitchen. So I made a spreadsheet. <laughs> I made a spreadsheet across the top was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the dishes, uh, yeah. down the side was the time. And then it was populated by, okay, you know, activities and different, like this thing is going in the oven at this temperature and at the simultaneously as this one. And then when that's done, then this happens and everything would be ready at 2 PM. And I, I, it was one of the greatest, I was, uh, my, my wife said you were just in your, in your uh, glory in the kitchen because at two o'clock, you know, I had, and people would come in, you know, uh, how can I help? And I say, great, here's the spreadsheet, you know, take a look. It's two, you know, it's uh, 1130. So that means the kale needs to be washed. So you can do the kale and they would go off and do that. So I had, you know, three or four sous chefs at a time working on. So two o'clock comes, everything is perfectly done and set on the table. And it was just glorious. I mean, it just all worked out perfectly timed and everybody sort of they they gave me a really hard time about a thanksgiving spreadsheet but nobody was complaining at two o'clock when all the food was ready perfectly done you know right <laughs> so we're hosting again this year so the spreadsheet's going to be making a another appearance sweet 
So and at 225, everybody napped. Is that what, ha- what and, happened? Yep. And then everybody passed out. And that once that was done, okay, you guys can clean up. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. Nice. Do, I'm do, taking a uh, nap. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- excellent. Now, uh, aside from the Thanksgiving, do you, do you have a specialty like a, like a John Lane? This is a the John Lane creation in the kitchen. I've gotten into so many different things like during the um, I, I guess I would say like during the pandemic, like everybody else, I discovered bread making and mm. I got really into it. Uh, there's a book called Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast by Ken Forkish. And I I just got, you know, I made bread for years uh, there. We didn't buy a loaf of bread for probably three years. Um, and so out of that came, you know, I learned how to make really good pizza mm. Um I've learned when I moved to Huntsville, I learned how to make Indian food because in Cincinnati, they have fantastic Indian food in Cincinnati. And I discovered it there when I moved here. Of course, there's good Indian food in Houston, but it's, you know, an hour down the road. There's no way I'm going to go down there just to eat Indian food all the time. So I learned how to make Indian food. So I think maybe my specialty is just finding kind of like um, these little niche things that I can, that I can do. So bread making, uh, Indian food, you know, I made, I made, um, Leong pea noodles with, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, interesting Asian things that I've made that I just can't get here that I'm interested to, to have. So, so those are kind of the things. You know, my, my wife has gotten into making Indian food, same reason, like there, there hadn't been a really good place locally or there was, <laughs> and then it, it closed. So I know that she's like, it's been like a process to just like to get all the spices and to figure out like, just to get it close, you know, like that's the thing. Can I get it close to what I would buy at a really good Indian? Do you have any, you have any suggestions on that? Sure. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I have good recommendations. So, um, the first Indian cookbook that I got was called 660 Curries by Raghavan Iyer. And that book in the introduction has a whole section on all the spices and everything. Of course, it's very easy now to order things, mail order, and even our local grocery stores now carry a lot of these spices that they didn't used to back in 2006 when I got here. And so it's very easy to find kind of those things. But there's another, so Raghavan Iyer, 660 curries. The other one is a, a food writer that I follow. Her name is Priya Krishna, and she has a book called Indianish. And it's a book. It's it's actually it's a really beautiful book. So her mother, uh, she grew up in Dallas, and her mother. So she was a first generation American, and her mother would bring these uh, sort of recipes from India and adapt them to the ingredients that she could find in Dallas, Texas. And so all of these recipes were sort of, you know, that's why it's called Indian-ish. It's like mm-hmm. Western ingredients that you would easily find, but made with Indian techniques. And then there's a handful of like, these are the essential spices that you have to have. If you don't have these spices, here's a decent substitute. I found that book to be really, really helpful for people right. who were like just getting started with Indian cooking. And the Raghavan Iyer thing is uh, heavy. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a tome, you know, it's a big, big book. I don't know if you'd ever get through that whole thing. But Indianish is is great, and there's other re- good recipes in there that aren't Indian recipes. But uh, yeah, those are my two recommendations. Next question: What's a great movie, and what's a terrible movie? Oppenheimer was amazing. Yeah, uh, th- and that's that's something that's topical and and up to date. So yeah, um, I loved that. I thought that was just fantastic, and I I got the book, and I'm reading the book. The book um, is amazing. 
Yeah, it really is. It yeah. really is. So, um, so Oppenheimer. Problem is, I kind of vet all the movies. I don't really watch a lot of terrible movies. You know, I was really disappointed with Prometheus. I thought that was terrible. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I loved Alien and uh, mm-hmm. Prometheus. Just, uh, yeah, it was a it, he missed the mark on that one. I think. Yeah. It, on my, if you look at my letterboxed, all the president's men, mm. uh, France, Francis Ha. Those are two of my. Oh yeah. Movies. Uh, yeah. Very different films, those two right back to back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. We've been recently showing my son all of the... Uh, he's just to the age where we can kind of start to introduce Marvel and Star Wars and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So we're, um, so we're just, you know, kind of making, making our way through those at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, and I, I, think, I think a son your age, he would love Oppenheimer, right? Maybe not. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> Barbie, yes. Oppenheimer, yes. Yeah. not so much. <laughs> we did take him to see Barbie. Yeah. So, yeah, that was good. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice. All right. What's a you? You may have. I mean, you kind of mentioned some books already, but what's a favorite book or other favorite books? My favorite book that has launched me into a whole, I mean, I'm, I'm on sabbatical next semester doing this whole project related to it. I have it right here. It says by my computer. I've read it three times learning from the Germans. Oh, wow. By Susan, by Susan Nyman. Um, and so learning from the Germans race and the memory of evil. And this book is about, um, there's a German word, uh, Vergangenheits auf Arbeitung, which means working off the past. And Germany is one of the few countries, maybe the only country, that had this journey from victim to perpetrator. Yeah. And coming to terms with what that means historically. And so they have this whole term for it, uh, Mm -hmm. and it means working off the past. And so this book is about um, Susan Nyman is a, a Jewish woman who was American. She was born in the segregated South in the 60s, grew up in Atlanta, um, and then lived in Germany in the 80s, uh, like before the wall came down. And so she lived as an American Jew in Germany in those times, and then had this whole background of being raised in the South, um, in the segregated South. So this book kind of talks about the the German journey post-war of coming to terms with being perpetrators of these these crimes against humanity and and atoning for that and moving forward through that and then looking at the American South and saying what can we learn from them in confronting our own our own history mm-hmm. and I just I think it's a fabulous book and it's launched me I've, I've learned I've spent uh, now I've gone Duolingo 700 something days of learning German. I'm going there in the spring to, to do this big project, uh, which I, which I won't get into here. It's way too long, but yeah, that's, that's my new book recommendation. I think every, every high school student in America should read this book. I think it's that important. It's really, really, really good. Awesome. It's, it's an interesting thing. I haven't, I haven't spent as much time reading about some of those eras, but like, yeah, after World War One, Germany was like completely was like both morally and financially decimated, basically. 
And it, and it makes sense for why Adolf Hitler and that all kind of fill the void basically. Right. Yeah. And, and just the ways that that, then it turned. <laughs> yeah. And, and this book isn't, this book isn't so much about the rise of fascism and everything that gave rise to that. This is really focusing on post-war and, and how, how the narratives coming out of Germany immediately post-war, especially in the West were, you would, when you read these accounts and read, read things from that era, you would, you would immediately notice that it's very similar to the lost cause mythology of the American South, that yeah. victims, the idea that they were the biggest victims of this war right. were the German people. And same thing in the American South, that the victims of the war were poor white Southerners, right? And so that's the whole lost cause mythology that then runs up. But in Germany, it took a different path. Uh, because the next generation came back and, and, you know, confronted and kept digging and kept finding and confronting the previous generation about war crimes and all, all of this atrocities and things that happened. And finally, they they eventually arrived at a place of of atonement that you can't, I haven't been there yet, I'm going next, you know, next year, but like that what I've read is that you can't really go anywhere in Germany without some reminder about the Holocaust. There's stumbling stones and this famous artist has made stumbling stones in the street that you, that are in front of houses where Jewish people were killed, taken from their homes and their names. And the year is etched in the the little brass stone that sits in the ground. And they're just up a little bit higher than the cobblestone. So you actually can actually trip over them and you look down and there's a name. Uh, and we just don't have anything like that here, you know, and there's been anyway, it's a, it's a whole, a whole discussion about that. But uh, yeah, really, really made me think this book really made me changed, changed a lot of things about how I think about being an American Southerner, you know, growing up in Texas and having that perspective. And what can I learn from these Germans? What do they have to teach me? So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, relatedly, because you're you're going to be traveling, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Iceland. Um, I think the landscape there is just amazing, and I hope to go before global warming uh, makes it a jungle. Uh, you know, uh, so I would like to go there. There's a composer that I had followed that lived there for a while, um, and have been in touch with him over the years. And yeah, I would like to go and see, see that place. Just, I'm, you know, I, I love uh, the idea of the, the natural beauty of that place and the extremes of that place. Mm -hmm. So that's a place I definitely want to go one of these days. All right. What was your worst job growing up? Oh, easy. Hands down. The worst job I had was selling newspapers. I worked at the Empire Tribune in Stephenville, Texas when I was a like, freshman in high school, and I sold newspapers over the phone and oh. door to door. Oh, boy. It was awful. It was awful. Um, and I don't know why I thought it was a good idea at the time. I think I had some pressure from my parents. You know, you need to get a job and help pay for things and as we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, so, yeah. But uh, I grew up, my grandparents owned a grocery store in Heiko, and I grew up every summer working in the grocery store. And uh, so I always had that job in the summer, but I, I couldn't do that during the school year because I couldn't drive back and forth and do that. So I had to get a job in town, and that job lasted for, I don't know, a month or two months. 
Yeah. And I quit. I just couldn't handle it. And the uh, the the manager was real. You know, you got to get in there and make sales. And here's how to do it. And uh, uh, so I learned very quickly that I was not a salesman. And that has that has continued throughout my professional career. It is not something that I'm very good at. I'm not good at selling things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Uh, last couple strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Well, this. The strangest is maybe also the funniest. I played in a percussion group for a little while with uh, Christopher Dean and Brian Zader. We had a group called Pulsus, and we put it together, and we we did some really, really wonderful things. We got to go to Japan and do all kinds of uh, cool things. For We did it for about four or five years there. I had done a lot of my doctoral research on the music of Peter Garland, and so I convinced Brian and Chris that we should play some of this percussion music and so we were playing this piece called um, Three Strange Angels. Was it Three Strange Angels? Or Three Songs of Mad Coyote. And in Three Songs of Mad Coyote, the second movement is for a piano that you play. Or no, no. So it was for um, Lion's Roar and Bull Roars, right? So I don't remember who was playing the other. I think it was me and Chris were playing the Bull Roars and Brian was playing the Lion's Roar. And so we were doing a concert at Commerce at Brian's school. Yeah. And we were playing the bull roars and I'd made these bull roars, real big ones, you know, and so we're doing this thing and I'm spinning this thing around and right at the top of the, you know, when you're bringing it around, it goes flying off and flies over the head of the audience and like hits the organ in the back of the hall. <laughs> and I just froze, you know, uh, I just had no idea what, what do we, what do I do? Like, you know, and I, it was funny, but it was also kind of terrifying and embarrassing, hugely embarrassing. So thank you, Peter, for that experience. Uh, from any time I've ever done, we're in funny enough, we're doing that piece with my students this semester. And yeah. I, I gave them these, these bull roars. And I said, now look, I told them the story. And I said, when you go out for the performance, you double and triple check that these knots are tight and that they're not going to, you know, come out. Yeah. That's probably the funniest and the strangest. That's, yeah. that's wild. Yeah. So what it ended up like, did, was it like at a part where you just kind of had to just wait for the movement to end or what? <laughs> I honestly don't remember because I think I was I was terrified that it had hit somebody and injured someone. So I think sure. we'd stopped the piece immediately and said, Oh my God, is everyone okay? You know? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened. <laughs> All right. All right. Last question, John. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything? Oh, uh, cooking even has impacted you the most recently. Well, I, I have to come back to the Susan Nyman book. It's, I mean, it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm, I've, I've embarked on learning another language because of it, you know, I mean, so, yeah. and it's led me to read all kinds of other books that I ordinarily wouldn't have read. So I'd, I'd have to say, I'd have to say that book uh, right now, the yeah. thing that's had the biggest impact in my life in terms of like art, uh, is is the innocence and and coming face to face with how you know your your art bring in this case art about social justice has brought us into contact with people who have been in prison for 30 years and were innocent and had that lived experience and 
that that art can take you to that place is a pretty a pretty amazing thing. So I think maybe those two things are the biggest biggest impacts on my life. Yeah. What I'm curious what what other books have the this Nyman book kind of led you to? Oh, I mean, so many. I have a whole a whole uh, bibliography of these things. One is um, uh, a book called Aftermath by uh, who's the author of Aftermath? He, Arnold Yoner or something as a German author, and it's all about aftermath of World War II and clean the cleanup of all of that uh, stuff. Some writings by uh, Gunter Grass, a book called My Century. Actually, that's a really amazing book. It's fictional, but it's like the whole history of Germany, year by year, starting from the turn of the century, the 1900, the turn of the last century, 1900 to the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think is where it ends. I can't remember where it ends, but some, some more contemporary year, the whole century. Well, yeah. I guess maybe it's through the whole century. Yeah, so it's past the uh, fall of the wall. Anyway, that book was was on the list. Um, Hannah Arendt, you know, The mm. Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, which sitting on my bookshelf and it's very intimidating, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, there's a there's hundred other ones that I have uh, that I don't have time to read that are sitting there that are waiting to be read next semester when I'm on, on, on sabbatical. But yeah, those are some that come to mind. All the Light We Cannot See, that's a fantastic oh. fiction book that's yeah. some, somewhat popular. That yeah, that's that's great. That was but that's one that I wouldn't have and actually um it's funny, there's there's a number of I read a lot. I do a lot of audiobooks, but read a lot too. And there's there's been a lot of historical fiction books that I've discovered because of this. The reader. Yeah, that's that's an amazing book. Um there's a book called We Germans that's written from the perspective of a German soldier in world war ii that's that's sort of coming to grips with what's happening that one was was really excellent as well and then there's a bunch of historical fiction novels as well that i've read that for just world war ii era what's the uh, the huntress do you know this uh this book no here two seconds i'll tell you the author kate quinn Okay. Kate Quinn. Um, she does historical fiction based in World War II. So there's one called The Rose Code that's very good about about the code breakers. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, I, I read all kinds of stuff. So um, science fiction and yeah. So. All right, John, we're done. Wow. Very thorough. Thank you. This Thank was you. fun. This was really fun. Thank you for having me on. And uh, I've really enjoyed listening to your show and uh, i just was listening to matt mcclung's show uh he is that's one of my favorite i mean he is incredible that he's guy so great. he's so <laughs> great you know and he was here in texas for a long time yeah um, and I, i've had him up to school a few times and and stuff so yeah he's he's a guy that is uh, uh that i've known for a long time so it was fun to hear it was fun to hear his his story yeah uh, and i listened to mark ford's episode i listened to iun's episodes yeah. so yeah Great. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate your your time and I appreciate the comments. That's that's wonderful to hear. Such a pleasure chatting with John for this interview. I'm very grateful for the kind words he expressed about this show throughout, and I really enjoyed our talk. I look forward to meeting him in person, hopefully very soon, and hope for the best for his future.
Okay, I'm going to go a bit long in this segment, but I need to this week. This week's rave is a capital R rave. Maybe the raviest rave I've ever done in the spot. It is the 2023 re-release in 4K of what's considered one of the, if not the, greatest rock concert film of all time, 1984's Stop Making Sense. This is a concert film starring the talking heads and guests conceived by David Byrne and directed by Jonathan Demme. Now showing in theaters, including, hopefully, one near you. So let's begin here. I'm not necessarily a super fan of David Byrne and the Talking Heads, but I'm definitely a fan, and I frequently listen to their greatest hits albums and other records of theirs here and there over the years. Previously, in the same spot, I raved about David Byrne's American Utopia, a concert film that came out during the pandemic, directed by Spike Lee, that was also very, very good. Let's go further. I had seen this movie once before, probably over a decade or so ago, and while I quite enjoyed it and bought the soundtrack, I wasn't entirely clear why it's so well-received. I mean, it's very good, but watching it on my small TV didn't do it justice, apparently, which takes me to our local art house theater and their showing of this 4K restoration of the film, and it was honestly one of the best movie experiences of my life. One of the items that I completely remembered from the first time I watched this was that the concert begins with just David Byrne, his acoustic guitar, and a boombox as he plays one of his first hits, Psycho Killer. From there, band members and the rest of the crew join him eventually on stage, usually one person at a time per song. It's super effective. So I guess that's what stood out for many years ago. This time around... One of the items I paid the most attention to were the other musicians that joined the band. Talking Heads was made up of David Byrne, guitar and vocals, Tina Weymouth on bass, vocals, and keyboards, Jerry Harrison on guitar and keyboards, and Chris France on drums and vocals. Once they were all there, they were eventually joined by Bernie Worrell on keyboards, Alex Weir on guitar and vocals, Stephen Scales on percussion, and Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt on vocals. So here's the thing. All the original members of the Talking Heads were white, and all of their extra musicians were black. And what matters here is that the camera films this all as if every member were an original member. Literally, everybody has time to shine, feels like they're front and center, and they're fully engrossed in the performance. And that interaction between all band members is pretty spectacularly filmed, and a total credit to both Byrne and Demi. Another important item. While I suspect this was a great experience live, this concert felt like it was made for film. The lighting, the close camera work, the focus on all of the performers, and the background and foreground of the sets make complete sense as a visual experience. The film clocks in at just under 90 minutes, and you are captivated and never bored throughout. But here's why this is so important to see and to see it in a theater. The sound quality and sound mix for the music is the best I've ever heard in a theater. It's unreal how good and clear everything sounded. You heard the sounds of Chris France's drum set toms reverberate, for instance. You had everyone's vocals and guitar riffs super clear. The balance between all instruments completely worked, and while it was definitely loud in the theater, it was never overbearing. It was loud because you could hear everything. And that is what puts this over the top. 
This entire package really works. And I'm telling you, in the words of my undergrad mentor and previous podcast guest, David Levy, if this is in a theater near you, run, don't walk to see it. It's a truly transforming experience. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.